Well, our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the book uh, of Thessalonians. If you would like to turn to 1 Thessalonians, uh, you can also find that scripture printed for you in our bulletins. 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Several years ago, some of you who are older may remember this, Charles Barkley started a bit of a controversy when he appeared in a Nike commercial and stated, I am not a role model. Now, Charles Barkley had a habit of gambling a little bit too much and getting into barroom fights and throwing people through windows. Uh, and what he was trying to say in that commercial, I don't think was absolve me, but, but what he was trying to say was that kids need to look to professors and engineers and doctors and teachers and not to professional athletes to be their role models. And I think to some extent, I understand what he was saying, that he was, he was right about that. But I also think he was wrong about that because we're all role models. Uh, we're all examples. There are, there are people following your example and my example, whether we like that or not. We're all examples. Uh, in the church, it's trendy, I think, for us to say, don't follow my example, don't be like me, follow the example of Jesus. And I understand what we're trying to communicate when we say that, but that's actually not a biblical thing to say. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Thessalonians, also wrote Corinthians, and he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. And in the, the text we're about to read, he actually commends the Thessalonians for following his example and then for being an example to others. So we're all examples, whether we want to be examples or not. We're all examples. Now, how's that hit you? How's that hit you? How's that that strike you? On the one hand, that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose, right? Like the way I live is important and it, it has a shaping effect on the people around me. On the other hand, that's challenging and maybe that's a bit overwhelming to us, maybe even discouraging because we know that there's so much about our lives that we wouldn't want other people to imitate. There are things in our past, there are things in our present uh, that, that fill us with a great sense of guilt and a great sense of shame. And so the, the question then is, how can God use people like you and me, not just as cautionary examples, but as good examples to the people around us? And so we're going to read our text and think about that this morning. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that that we get together and uh, hear it proclaimed to us. Pray that you would speak through the words I use, uh, through both my strength and my weakness, uh, but that you would speak to us and open our hearts to hear the message of the gospel uh, and change us through that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us really just to see two things in this. Uh, I want us to see this example that he's um, thankful for in the Thessalonians' lives, and I want to see us. I want us to see how we become. Um, the type of people and the type of church who follow that example and who set that example for others. So uh, let me give you a little background first because this is our first week in this book. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. Macedonia is what would today be northern Greece. Uh, it's a very prosperous city. It was a harbor city. It was also uh, there's also a, a major east-west highway that went through Thessalonica. Uh, Paul, on his second missionary journey, had come to this city along with Silas and Timothy. Uh, They had preached the gospel there. They had been there for a while. And then some trouble got stirred up. There were some people that didn't like what they were saying. And so they had to leave this city. Uh, Later on, Paul sends Timothy back to check on them. Timothy brings a report back to Paul. And then Paul writes this letter that we have as 1 Thessalonians in response to the report that Timothy brought back to him. And he starts basically by telling them simply how thankful he is for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And then he, he lays out what he's thankful for. He's thankful that they've received the gospel. He's thankful that the gospel is, is bearing fruit in their lives. He's thankful, he says in verse 6, that the Thessalonians have become imitators of us and of the Lord. He's thankful in verse 7 that they have become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So what I want us to ask is, what is it that's so commendable about this church? That, that, that we could look at this church and say, we want our church to be like that. We want our campus ministry to be like that. We want our lives as individuals to be like that. Uh, Verse 2 and 3, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father these, these three things, your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9 and 10, he lists three very similar things, beginning of, excuse me, middle of verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And so let me suggest three things that Paul saw in their lives and that we would want to see in our lives. First of all, they transferred their faith from idols, and they placed their faith in the living God. 
Now, I think I we just kind of read that like, okay, that's not that big a deal. But the, the Thessalonians lived 50 miles from Mount Olympus. They could see Mount Olympus, the, the, the supposed home of the Greek gods. And their culture was filled with the worship of all sorts of gods. Uh, if you were going to go plant a tree, then you visited the shrine of the tree god to make sure that was going to work out all right. If you're going to take a business trip, you went to the shrine of the business god, business trip god, to make sure he was going to bless your business trip. They were, they, you would always have been trying to make sure all these various gods were on your side. And thrown in on top of all that was the fact that there had began to arise worship of the Roman emperor. Right, so you had kind of that going on as well. And so you have this kind of city, and these three Jewish dudes walk into the city, and they said, none of these are real gods. There is one true God, and his son's name is Jesus, and he died on the cross, and he's risen from the dead, and you should worship him. I, I, can you just think about how strange that would sound for a minute? Okay? It would be like somebody walking into modern America and telling us, you can't use smartphones or drive cars anymore if you want to know God. You're like, what? what? That's just a part of, that's our culture, that's what we do. Worshipping all of these idols was just woven into the fabric of their society. It's what they did, it's who they were. And then these members of the church in Thessalonica hear this message from the three Jewish guys about Jesus and they turn from all these idols and they place their faith in what Paul says is the living and the true God. Now, we don't have blocks of wood that we worship. Uh, We don't worship our presidents. Uh, we, We don't have a plethora of gods like they had in the ancient world. But we still worship idols. Uh, John Calvin said that the human heart is actually like an idol factory. We, we will come up with anything other than God to put our faith and our hope and our trust in. We will look to anything but God to deliver us from the, from the drudgery of life in a fallen world. And we, we elevate those things. And we serve them and we, we bow to them. We, we worship the God of, of applause and of being liked, and of health, and of success, and of the American dream, and of having an interesting, pleasure-filled life. The gods of control, the god of power. And we, we put our faith in these gods, thinking if this god blesses me, then everything's going to be okay. We put our faith in stories about why we're here, and what's wrong with the world, and, and how you fix it. And, and whether you're an atheist or agnostic or a member of, of whatever organized religion, you're putting your faith in some story about reality. No one gets around doing that. You might say, no, I just, I've thought it all out and I follow simple reason and rationality. But even beneath your reason and your rationality, you have faith commitments. There are faith commitments underlying everything. And so what we do is we we hook ourselves up to a story. We hook ourselves up to the gods that go along with those stories, like like a patient in a hospital being hooked up to an IV bag. 
And we, we draw our life from those gods and from those stories. And the Thessalonians have, in, in, in essence, been hooked up to the, all these pagan gods. And they've been drawing their lives from them. And then they turn from them, Paul says, and they are now connected to the living and the true God. And so, if we're going to follow that example, that example is one of turning from false gods and turning to the living God. And there's a sense in which there's an initial turning when we come to Christ and we repent of what we've been worshiping and we turn the worship of the true God. There's also a sense in which that's an ongoing thing because we don't see all the things that we have given our lives to, all the things that we worship when we first come to Christ. And God has to kind of root those out of our lives. And, and one of the ways we set an example for others is by owning that and admitting that and saying, yes, there, there are things that, that I'm still putting before God. And we set an example by working to discover what those idols are ourselves, by examining our hearts and asking ourselves questions like, what, what is it that really sustains me? What is it that I'm really living for? What is it that's really important to me? What is it that I'm always thinking about when I go to bed at night? And so we, we search for our idols and we confess them to God and we confess them to one another and we help each other turn from idols and turn to the living God. So the, 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 the first part of the example we follow is one of doing that, turning from idols and turning to faith in the living God. Secondly, the example we follow is one of serving God by loving God and loving other people. Uh, Paul commends the Thessalonians here because he says the gospel has gone out from you. The, the gospel message is sounded forth from you. Later in the book, he thanks them for the way they love one another. And so I, I think what's commendable here, Paul is getting at, is that he's thankful that their faith in God has led them to serve God uh, by, by loving one another, loving others, serving one another, serving others in both word and deed. They, they have become God-oriented and other-oriented people and that works itself out in word and in deed. We want to be those kind of people. We want to be that kind of church. I think it starts in our families where we begin to work through what it means to put the needs of our spouse before our own needs. Uh, where we learn to put the needs of our brother or our sister before our own needs. Uh, where we read the word of God to one another. Where we minister to one another in word it happens in our dorm rooms you know often when you when you are assigned a, a roommate in a dorm room you have to fill out this kind of contract at the beginning of the year it's like here's what i need you to do uh, you, you can't we can't have you talking on the phone after 10 o'clock and i've got to be able to get in the shower at seven o'clock and you kind of agree to this and that that's all well and good that's probably helpful but what if instead of that, instead of like, here's how you can make my life more comfortable, you made a list and said, here's how I'm going to serve my roommate this year. Here's, here's the way I'm not going to try to get you to make my life okay. Here's the way I'm going to take trouble in order to actually serve you. 
Uh, serving one another in word indeed extends to our workplaces, extends to our ministries like RUF and, and, and how we're going to try to do that by serving the students lunch in a few weeks. It extends to us thinking through who we are as a congregation and, and how God has made us and, and how we can serve the city of Spartanburg. So we set an example uh, by turning from idols to God. We set an example by serving God and our neighbor. And then we set an example by waiting patiently and hopefully for the return of Jesus. Uh, We go out and we labor and we work and we fight the good fight. We fight against disease and poverty. We give aid in times of, of disaster. We push back against wickedness. We spread the good news of the gospel. But in the midst of all of that, our real hope is, a, is very much a future-directed hope. Our hope is that Jesus is really coming back to make all things new. Our, our hope is that everything bad is going to come undone. Our hope is that we will have new resurrection bodies freed from disease in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the hope that sustains us this morning, even as we grieve someone who we love very much as a church. You know, Helen really had two hopes, and I think Annie did a great job of talking about these two things, how she wanted to stay and be with her family, but she also longed to, to see Jesus. She, she had one hope, which, which was an uncertain hope, with a lowercase h that we all shared with her. And that hope was that she was going to be cancer in this life. But she also had a certain hope in all caps that she absolutely was going to beat cancer in the next life because she was going to be with Jesus. And, and even now, she's experiencing the fruition of that hope. She, she's experiencing a joy that we, like, we can't even really begin to touch or understand what that's going to be like. See, her, her real hope and our real hope uh, is, I think, encapsulated so well in Philippians 3 where, where Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Not America, ultimately. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's that's our hope. That's our hope. And so we, we set an example of faith by turning from idols to serve the living God. We set an example of love by loving God and by loving one another. And we set an example of hope by waiting joyfully for Jesus and the making new of all things. Now, how do we... (laughs) Alright, that's nice. How do we do that? How do we do that? Where do we get the strength from to do that. How, do, how does that begin to, to, to actually bubble up within us and not just be something that we kind of try to force out? Well, well verse 6 says what had happened was that the Thessalonians had received the word of God. And verse 5 says 
Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. They heard the good news of the gospel. And what was the good news of the gospel? It was good news, according to verse 1, that brought them, that made them united with God somehow. And, and that brought them grace and peace. And verse 10 said, it was good news that they would be delivered from the wrath to come by Jesus. See, our, our worship of gods that aren't gods, our putting ourselves before others, our ignoring our Creator, these are not minor offenses in God's book, but they actually bring us under God's wrath. And yet God has made a way for His wrath to be satisfied and turned away from us in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what the cross is about. And the gospel is that we can actually find shelter in that cross. We can find shelter from God's wrath. We can find forgiveness of our sins. We can have our guilt and shame obliterated. We can know the certainty of resurrection life in the shadow of that cross. See, that that cross is not about a Savior who comes and demands that you work to be saved. That cross is about a Savior who does the work for you. The Gospel is about a Savior who wins where we've lost. 2003... The Chicago Cubs had not won a World Series in baseball since 1908. They had been placed under a curse even by the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern, of all people to curse you, uh, in 1945. But now, in 2003, they were ahead 3 to nothing in the sixth game of the National League Championship Series. It was the eighth inning. They were five outs away from going to the World Series. And there was a long fly ball, and I think it was down the right field line. It was in foul territory, but it was catchable. And the guy's getting ready to catch the ball. There's going to be two outs in the eighth inning now. And as he's getting ready to catch the ball, a guy named Steve Bartman, who was a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, just sees a foul ball coming. And he reaches over, and he catches the ball. And so it's, it's fan interference. The guy's not out. Everybody is, is furious at what's happened. But you think, okay, they can still win. They gave up eight runs in the next two innings. They completely fell apart. They lost the game. They lost the series. They didn't go to the World Series. And Steve Bartman became the most evil person in Chicago. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's been really sad for him. That, that play was played over and over and over again. He was harassed. He couldn't go to the games anymore. He got death threats. He, he, was, he represented like evil to the Chicago Cubs. Fast forward to last year, 2016. Chicago Cubs win the World Series finally. And they get championship rings. They get an extra ring. And you know who they gave that ring to? They gave a ring to Steve Bartman. 
<laughs> they gave a ring to Steve Bartman. They gave a ring who they felt was a reason that they didn't get to play for the World Series 13 years before when they hadn't been, won a World Series since 1908. They gave a ring to the guy who had nothing to do with them winning the World Series. And you might say everything to do with them losing it 13 years earlier. Can you imagine what that felt like? If, if you're Steve Bartman, can you imagine that the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that he had felt for so many years and then with one act, the giving of a ring that he hadn't earned, the Cubs removed all of that and set him free. In one act, God had removed the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of the the Thessalonian believers and set them free. Free from laboring to, to please idols. Free from condemnation. Free from living for the applause of others. Free to, to be honest about their own struggles because they didn't have to go and impress any pagan gods anymore to win their favor. They just had to receive the gift that had been extended to them in Jesus. See, the, the power that transforms our lives so that we can then live as, as examples to others is the power of the Holy Spirit driving the message of that gospel down into our hearts. And the way that you and I become examples is by receiving that good news of the gospel and resting in that good news of the gospel and soaking in that good news of the gospel and relishing that good news of the gospel. That gospel and, and, and doing that, that's what turns you away from idols to serve the living God. That's what frees you from demanding that other people serve you so that you can now actually serve them. That's what frees you from the fear of death. So that you and I can put our hope not in medical technology, but we can put our hope in Jesus who frees us from the wrath to come. That's good news. That's the good news that if you get in you, will change you so that you can set an example for others. When I was a kid... um, I loved McDonald's Happy Meals. I mean, probably like like all kids, all right? In fact, I was actually eight years old when the McDonald's Happy Meal was invented, all right? So like like prime time, and that tells you how old I am. And, you know, if I had kept one of those, you could probably still eat it now with the preservatives they put in them. But, but you know, as I got older, I like most people as we get older mcdonald's kind of dropped in the ratings like they're number one when you're six and then they're like they're like the last fast food restaurant i go to now almost all right they they dropped in the ratings but one thing i always thought even though i didn't eat there anymore really was that they had the best french fries of anybody like you you could not touch a mcdonald's french fry and then one day i was in mcdonald's and I ate the french fries. It was the one thing I was looking forward to. I'm like, they're not that good anymore. Like, I don't, I, they're not, I, they taste like everybody else's. I don't know what happened. And so, it's like, oh, well, they can't even do that right. And, you know, kind of forgot about it. Well, I found out what happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, McDonald's french fries used to be cooked in beef tallow. 
Now, I googled that and I still couldn't explain to you what it is other than that it's animal fat goodness. All right? That's, that's, that's all I can tell you. And then in 1990, some guy, he who shall not be named, um, went on a health crusade and started getting everybody to, to cook their french fries in vegetable oil. And he even went after McDonald's. And they caved. And they started cooking their french fries in vegetable oil instead of beef tallow. And they're terrible. They, 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 yeah, right? Some of you can remember this. They never tasted the same way again. And so if you've never had a McDonald's french fry from before 1990, I'm sorry, but you've never had a McDonald's french fry. All right, you, you, you've like never experienced the, the real deal. Um, in some ways, in fact, they're, they're less healthy now. And they, but that's, that's another whole story. Uh, they've had to change the, again and again. But, but some of you, some of us, have gone years thinking that we're eating McDonald's french fries when in fact we've been eating cheap, toxic imitations of the real thing. And so your reaction when you get the McDonald's french fry today is kind of like, Okay, it's a French fry. I mean, whatever. Some of us have been in the church, or around the church, or around Christianity for years. And we think we've been getting the real thing, but the reality is that we've been getting a cheap, toxic imitation of the real thing. We thought that Christianity was either just about us being good enough, or we've thought on the other, kind of the other extreme that, well, God just kind of accepts everybody. And that's not what it's about. And our reaction to that is just kind of like, oh, okay. But that's not what it's about. Christianity is about a God of infinite holiness and infinite purity, sending His Son to rescue people who had rebelled against Him, who didn't deserve His grace at all. And the way we get in on that amazing rescue is not by doing work. It's by receiving and resting in what Christ alone has done for us. And so, if the version of Christianity that you've experienced to this point, if the version of Christianity that you've been chewing on hasn't amazed you, hasn't freed you, hasn't given you joy, if it hasn't created in your heart faith and hope and love, then maybe you haven't been chewing on the real thing. Maybe you've never had a real french fry. Maybe you've never tasted the real Jesus and heard the real gospel. I invite you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good and this gospel is real and it's offered to you freely. Let me pray. Father, I pray that we would hear the gospel this morning and that it would come through your word and with power and with conviction that is brought by the Holy Spirit And that hearing your gospel, that we would be those who turn from our idols 
and turn to you, the living God, to love you and to serve you and to wait for Jesus to return, for Jesus who does indeed rescue us from the wrath to come. We pray all this in his name. Amen.